sidetracked by his mustache. Just, it's hard not to stare at it. That, that, is a, that is one manly mustache. He is like, Paul Tripp is tougher than Chuck Norris, I'll tell you that. He is the most interesting guy in the world. Um, if you have your Bibles, please let's go to John chapter 12. Tell me you didn't record what I said about Mr. Tripp. Mr. Tripp, I love you. <laughs> if you're on the, the MP3 side of this message, I really appreciate your faithful work, your faithful ministry. Okay, um, before we read our text and we start our sermon, there's lots of things for us to do, but I want to, if it's okay with you, I want to brag a little bit on Jesus because he has shown um, over and over again, time after time, how great he is and how awesome he is and how much he cares for his sheep. Um, as many of you know, I'm living a very interesting uh, season in my life. There's lots of things going on. Um, my wife and I have um, felt some time ago that the Lord might have been calling us to plant a church um, in Brazil, and we've been living in the States for so many years now. We love this place. This is home. And to be called to leave your your house and relatives, it's not an easy thing. So we started preparing for things slowly and praying. And uh, I feel like I'm called to ministry. You guys keep letting me preach to you. So I feel like it's a, a confirmation and um, of that being sent to plant a church um, elsewhere. It's just, it's just an interesting season. It's, it's difficult, it's hard, and uh, it's emotionally difficult. There's lots of things going on. Little did we know that we would lose dad very unexpectedly. My wife lost her father. He was the healthiest guy ever, healthier than, than all of us. And then the Lord um, uh, decided to take him. And uh, it's been a, a difficult season. That led to me sending my family to Brazil three whole months before me. And uh, talk about interesting. You know, some days it's been, it's been over a week now, um, actually almost two weeks. Some days it's, it's, it's a little bit hard and it's, um, it's dreadful to go back home at night. And um, part of it, I'm not going to play tough, part of it is really, it's sad. There's this sadness kind of hanging over me, you know. Um, and uh, it's been difficult having, like, cohesive, like, uh, um, linear thoughts, concentrating for a long period of time. And that obviously influences, impacts my study time. It impacts my sermon preparation. I felt like I was a pagan trying to, to put this sermon um, together. It's like, do I even know any Bible anymore? I can't hold a thought for more than three minutes. So it's just an interesting season. I just want you guys to keep me in prayer. Now, I know that you are praying for me because I, I feel sustained. I feel supernatural power. I feel like I am being carried um, by um, our Lord. So thank you for that. Please don't forget me in your prayers. I appreciate it, and I'm asking you for your prayers. Um, so back to this, this little sadness, it's kind of, kind of hanging. I mean, I don't have my kids. You know, being a, being a, a dad is kind of a thing of mine. Being a husband, I don't, you know, don't have my wife. I see her every day <clears throat> for the last 16 years. 
So I get home, it's like it's silent. I can hear the voices in my head again. It's the weirdest thing. You know, so um, this sadness, as I prayed, like just yesterday, I'm like, I, I need to have my thoughts back. I need to be able to, to, to present your truth, to preach, to feed your people, to feed your sheep. Somehow the Lord lifted it. Somehow the Lord, I mean, it's a supernatural thing how I feel like the burden has been lifted. And it's like 30, 30 pounds have fallen off my back. It's like I feel light again. And um, I take that to, I mean, it's subjective. And I take that as an expression of God's care and love, not only for me, but for you guys. I receive it as a gift. You know, our lives are not guided by these subjective impressions. They're not. Our lives are guarded and guided by the Bible, by the objective truth that God has revealed to us. But when things like that happen and you experience His presence and His care and His love and His answer to prayer, I receive it as His love for us, confirming, encouraging, protecting us. And once again, He's showing, I care for you. I care for you, I care about you, I love you, I'm with you. You know, it takes a whole different meaning. It, it takes a whole deeper meaning when you hear, you know, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And then you experience these things daily in a walk with the Lord. And it's like, yeah, they're not only black marks on a page. They're not only, you know, it's not just saying it. It's not only something that is written and doesn't have any meaning for my life. And I know that you can think of a dozen situations in your life where you need to experience this presence, this lifting of the burden that is um, with you, that is on you. And uh, I just want to encourage you that God is faithful. God is faithful. And uh, not only... We see that in Scripture, but He also He backs it up in our daily walk with Him. Okay, so let's let's read our text. It's John 12, um, verses 12 through 26. If you have it, we read it. Then I want to pray a little bit, and then uh, we um, we'll look into the text a little more closely. Starting in verse 12, this is what uh, the Word of God says. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just that is written, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. 
The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look! Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Father, I beg you that you allow us to see that this is about King Jesus. And him dying to bear fruit, dying for us, and bearing much fruit. Father, do not let us get sidetracked by any of the many things that are happening in this passage of Scripture, but let us see and behold and love and welcome the majesty of King Jesus. Oh, so many times we forget, or we do not walk in light of His majesty. Oh, Father, let us not, let us not treat the King lightly. Let us not have trite conversations about the One who rules sovereignly over the universe and all of the affairs of man. Let us witness His majesty, His glorious character. Let us love it and live in light of it as we learn and behold His glorious kingship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, like I prayed, this is about the Lord Jesus being King. There's many things happening here. Jesus has raised someone from the dead days before, then He went away. Word got out. A lot of people saw that. He didn't do that. It's not just a, something that He claimed He did. He did it in broad daylight. Lazarus had been dead for four days. Jesus brought him from the dead in front of a lot of people. The word got out. They wanted to make him king. They wanted to tell everybody. And they did. Jesus went away. Jesus walked away and hid for a few days. And then it was Passover. The talk of Jerusalem, the latest subject for the crowd, it was, will Jesus come? Will He show up for the feast? Because the Pharisees had issued a, a warrant for His arrest. They said, if anyone sees this man, let us know so we can come and arrest Him. So now their opposition was official. They wanted 
to arrest him. Something needed to be done. The Pharisees, the, the religious leadership, they felt like this is what's going to happen. This man is going to be made king. The people of Israel, they're going after him. Now, Rome will look at this. They're going to come and they're going to destroy our temple. They're going to take our positions from us. They're going to take our place from us. We've got a good thing going right here. Let's not mess with this. Something needs to be done. So the high priest has a great idea. And he prophesies, not even knowing how deep the things he was saying was. He said, it is better for one man to die for the nation than the whole nation perish. Little did he know that that was exactly the plan of God. That Jesus would die so that we would not perish. So they decide, if we don't kill him, the Romans will come and kill us. Let's kill him. So they issued a, warning, a warrant for his arrest. So everybody wants to see, is Jesus going to come? Is this true? Everybody's saying that he raised someone from the dead. We are told in these verses that the people who had seen the miracle, they kept bearing witness to this miracle. They would not stop talking about it. I don't blame them. This is not some magic trick. This is not a party trick that people laugh. This is a dead body listening to a, a command and coming out of a grave. This is tremendous. This is traumatizing. People don't forget this kind of stuff. It's even a little terrifying to be in the presence of someone who has power over life and death. So they kept bearing witness. There's great messianic anticipation in those days, and especially now that Jesus is concluding His ministry. All of the evidence is in. Jesus has fulfilled prophecies. Jesus has done several miracles. He has worked many, many miracles. He rose people from the dead. He fed thousands of people. He healed the sick. All the evidence is in. His claims are backed up by wonderful signs. So there's a lot of people saying, this is it. This is it. Some are saying, you know, there's opposition. And some are saying, when the Messiah come, will he do more than this? I mean, what can be greater than raising somebody from the dead? Are you kidding me? You know, he just restored sight to someone who has been born blind. The guy who, never, who, who didn't walk for 38 years, he told him, get up, take your bed, and, and, and leave. And the guy did. I mean, what else do you want? What kind of proof do you want to follow this man? This is it. He is the Messiah. God has fulfilled all of His promises to His people. We're safe. We are going to be delivered. Now, they had a theology of their Messiah. They wanted the Messiah to come and drive those pagans out of their land. They wanted the Messiah to come and, and be this great military uh, uh, leader, this political leader that would drive out Rome from their land, that would end the occupation, that would put an end to the oppression of the Romans. Jesus comes on the scene. There are a lot of people put their hope on them, on him. 
Now, Jesus in the past, we are told that he doesn't really accept a whole lot of... I mean, Jesus, he's not out looking for attention. In John 6, he feeds maybe upwards of 20,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, right? He multiplies the bread. In the end, there's like 12 full baskets of bread and fish. I mean, he fed everybody, and there was food left over. Everybody was like, wow, you know. And they wanted to, to acclaim Jesus, to crown him. And Jesus, perceiving that he was, John 6, 15, that he, those people would take him by force and make him king, he withdrew and alone went to pray. That's not what he wanted. When he raised, when he rose, uh, he raised um, Jairus' daughter, also from the dead, he got there, she was dead, he said, no, she's just asleep. Everybody laughed, right? Everybody started laughing at him. So he took the parents and said, you know, everybody stay out, come here. And the girl is lifeless, completely dead on, on that table, bed. She's just lying there. It's their little girl. Jesus walks up to her and says, Talitha, come Little girl, get up. The girl gets up. And she goes, I'm hungry. <laughs> it's like, all right, I'm done here. Feed her, she's hungry. And he doesn't stay there for a big party, wanting to get all his attention. You know, he doesn't launch a, a political campaign. Doesn't sign a new contract, a new TV deal. Just leaves. He's not out looking for attention. Peter confesses, you are the Christ. You are the Son of Man. You are the Messiah, the Promised One, says Peter. He admits it. He says, you know what, Peter? It wasn't flesh and blood that revealed this to you. It was my Father in heaven. You're right. I am the Messiah. But he charges them, don't tell people. Don't tell people. This is, for now, this is going to be our, just our, our little secret. He's not out looking for attention. Even when he, rose, he raised him from Lazarus from the dead, the party was starting. What did he do? He laughed. Now, he also laughed because people wanted to kill him, and it wasn't his time. His hour had not arrived. His hour had not come. That's the expression he used for, it's not time for me to die yet. And that didn't happen only once. But in this text today, we are told that the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified has come. And this is why there's a change in his tune. Now he's behaving differently. Everybody's waiting for him in Jerusalem. They're all talking about him. They all want to know if he's coming. Is he coming? Is he coming? He knows of the messianic expectation that is present in his day in Jerusalem in this feast. He knows what's happening. He does not withdraw. He moves right in. He knows that there is a mandate for his arrest. 
He knows that everybody is told to tell the authorities, if you see him, we want to arrest him. He knows all of that. He finds a donkey and he rides into the city. Broad daylight and he comes in. The people see him and they welcome him as king. They took palm branches, they throw it on the floor, they wave it and they say, Hosanna, Hosanna which means save me or salvation. And it had become a national greeting. It had become a cultural thing. But it did express their expectation. It did point to their expectation of, we need salvation. Maybe many of them treat them tritely. That's possible, I, I believe. But that pointed to the promises of God that one day, He would send deliverance to His people. So they welcome Him. And He comes right in. He receives the worship of the people. The welcoming of the people. Treating Him as King. Now I wonder, and and this is the point, the, the, the main point. This is what verses 12 through 19 are about. Like I said, there's many things happening. There's the messianic expectation. There's the the fear and embarrassment of of the Pharisees and them taking action to kill him. See, you're gaining nothing. The whole world has gone after him, which is kind of an odd thing to say. We'll, we'll, uh, We'll look into it. There's a lot of things happening. There's the fact that these people are worshiping him, welcoming him as the Messiah. They're doing that on Sunday. But days later, they're going to be yelling, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Jesus knew. But the idea of these seven verses, eight verses, is that Jesus Christ is King. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord even the King of Israel. And I wonder how much of our daily walk, how much of our prayer life, how much of our relationships is done in light of the majesty of Jesus. How much do we meditate and walk in light of that truth taught in the Bible? That Jesus Christ is King. He's not a dude. He's not a buddy. He's not cute. He is the sovereign king of the universe. He rules and reigns sovereignly over everything. Over this world, over creation, over every molecule that fly around. And He certainly rules over all of the affairs of mankind, over history, and of course He rules over every situation present in our individual life. And I wonder how much we live and love this truth. I mean, how... And and these people did it. They had this, this... 
expectation that Jesus would deliver them, that he would be this William Wallace, and that he would fight everybody. And they're like, oh, you're going to... Are you going to kill the Romans? Yeah, you're king. You are king. Are you going to end this oppression? Yeah, Jesus, you're king. Welcome. Come on in. You're going to end the oppression? You are king. You're going to restore the glory days? You're going to bring back the golden days of Israel? Restore us to our glory? You are king. You're going to be our king just like all the pagan nations? We're going to have a king that we can worship like everybody else? Oh yeah, you are king. Oh, you're going to die a serp? You're going to ride into town on a on a small donkey, and you're going to die a servant's death? No. Crucify you! Now, it's easy, and I guess we're all guilty, I'm certainly guilty of that, to look at that and say, I mean, come on, look at these people! That's easy. And it should, it, I mean, it should impact, you, impact your emotions, and it's not, this is not an example. But how much of, I mean, in our own lives, how many times have you gotten mad at God because He didn't do what you told Him to do? Oh, yeah, Jesus, you are king! Oh, uh, yeah, you're not going to heal my loved one? You know, I don't even want to read the Bible anymore. You're not going to find me a job? I'm going to go to all this hardship? I mean, I've been sad for... Like six months now and the darkness will not lift. Therefore I give permission to myself to disobey all of these commandments because after all I'm sad. Clear commands, biblical commands that ah, it's too much lately. Now of course we're Christian people, we're churchgoers. And of course we never use those words talking to God, meaning, oh, you're not going to heal my loved one? I'm not going to read the Bible. But how many times are we so down that, yeah, we don't come to Him, the fountain of living water. We don't come to Him for comfort and joy, for our daily strength to carry on. We forsake Him, He who is the fountain of living water, the fountain of salvation, an eternal fountain of joy. And then we go and, and, and we see very dry land, and we dig and dig and dig. Another fountain that is dry, and we keep trying to feed our thirst, you know, to quench our thirst with that sand of sin and disobedience and rebellion. I mean, how arrogant it is for us to look at God, the King of the universe, who is all-wise, all-powerful, all-good, and because the circumstances in our life are not lining up to the plan that we had, we say, crucify you. The king of the universe deserves ultimate allegiance. In spite of our circumstances. 
Jesus is king and he is a humble king. He is a servant king. He is a loving king. He came to die. A death that he did not deserve. A king that dies for us peasants. How many more proofs do you need for his love? How many more proofs do you need so that you can trust in him, that he is good, that he loves you? I'm not saying life doesn't hurt, but even when it does, I want you to know that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us in Christ an eternal weight of glory that is just incomparable to anything that we can go through. And He has given proof after proof after proof that He is good, that He is excellent, that He is benevolent, and that He loves us. You can trust Him. You can trust the King Even when things happen in your life that you do not know what's happening, that you don't understand, you have to fall back on what you do understand, which is that He is good, that He is loving, and that He is King, meaning He has power over life and death. He rules sovereignly, and He deserves our allegiance. He is the king of it all. And he's not only king of Israel like our text says. I see like John is skillfully, just skillfully telling us, you know, it's not only king of Israel. He's king of much more than Israel. Because verse 20, if you want to take a look at it, what does John say? I think it, it's kind of odd, because John hasn't mentioned other people for 12 chapters. But now, out of the blue, it doesn't even have like a, a normal flow. You know, he is showing the scene in Jerusalem, then he, he cuts that scene, he goes to the Pharisees' private conversation, where they're yelling at each other. See, the world has gone after this guy. Then he cuts that scene again, it's like a Tarantino movie. He cuts that scene again and he goes to some Greeks that went to visit Jerusalem. I mean, this is Jerusalem. This is Jews. It's like... Now, verse 20. Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. The Pharisees, just like Caiaphas, had prophesied it is, in the end of chapter 11, it is better that one man dies for the whole nation. It is better that Jesus die. They were prophesying. He didn't say that out of his own accord, according to John. But he was prophesying. God gave him those words. The very words that got Jesus killed. He was prophesying beyond what he thought. That he even understood. Now, I feel like the Pharisees are doing the same thing. The whole world has gone after him. John starts showing Jesus as king. The Pharisees say that the world has gone after him. 
Now, John proves it by saying, the Greeks were there and they wanted to see Jesus. Now, this is going beyond Jerusalem. This is going beyond Palestine, beyond Israel. This Messiah is spreading. And it's going out. And we know, now looking back, we know that it's going to go to every corner of this planet. Jesus is King of the world. Not only Jerusalem. This is how high and exalted He is. This is how high and exalted our King is is so they say we want to see Jesus now Andrew and Philip they go and, and they tell Jesus now John he just wanted to insert that okay Greeks are looking for him the word is getting out of Jerusalem it's going to reach the whole world that's all he mentions about these Greek guys. Did they talk to Jesus? Did they connect with Jesus at all? Do you know? I don't either. Because John doesn't say. He doesn't make this about the Greeks. He shows us Philip <clears throat> talking to him, to Jesus. Saying, hey, these guys want to see you. But he doesn't say that that the, Jesus, the, the Greeks are there present. He doesn't say that Jesus gets in a conversation with them, shake their, shakes their hands. He does not make this about the Greeks. It's just an insertion to show us Jesus is king of the world. And then he just shows Jesus' answer. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, Hey, they want to see you, Lord. Verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is. I mean, first of all, he's saying that his glorification starts with being martyred, being killed. Very, very, very different from our idea of success, isn't it? He is getting His glory back. It's the hour for Him to be glorified. So this is why He's welcoming all of this glory, all of this, come on in, King. And He's marching to the cross. He knows it's time for Him to die And why is he dying? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much, much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life, rather, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, Jesus is dying to bear fruit. The fruit that He's going to bear is laid out that hmm, 
we can be with Him where He is. That where I am, there will my servant be also. Without the death of Jesus, it would not be possible for any of us, for any of us, Greeks nor Jews, South Americans, North Americans, to be with Jesus where He is. There would be nobody in heaven. The death of Jesus is what makes it possible for us to dwell in the presence of God forever and ever and ever and ever. You see, our greatest, our greatest need is not more self-esteem and, and encouragement. Our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sin. We are in trouble In the hands of a God who is just. We thank God that He is perfectly loving. And He has made a way for us to be with Him. For us to be forgiven of our sin and dwell with Him in eternal joy in heaven. But without the death of Jesus, that would not be possible. Because... How can he justify the wicked? I mean, the, the greatest expression of wickedness is to declare what is wicked to be just. And what is righteous and just to call it wicked. In Jesus Christ, God accomplishes the most difficult, impossible task of all, which is to justify the sinner, to make us guiltless in the presence of a holy God. And that is free for us. We just come to Him. He accomplished even that on the cross. But it was not free for him. It cost the life of his one and only beloved dear son. Jesus is marching towards his death. Just like a grain of wheat. It's going to die on the floor dry. But then fruit will be born. And he will not be alone. There's a purpose for His death. And He has accomplished it all. Whoever loves His life loses it. Now that's, that's unusual. That's contrary to what we think. And whoever hates His life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, I'm going to read it to the end and then I want to point some contrasts. Uh, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
Now, this is not an easy text, meaning this is not easy listening. I mean, this is a hard thing. To follow Jesus is a hard thing. He is, where is he going? He's going to the cross. He's going to his death and he's calling us to follow him. Now, when he's talking about this, he's not talking only about himself anymore, but he's showing himself. Okay, I'm going to serve. You want to follow me? You serve. To hate my life? That's hard. Jesus is saying that if you live a life that is driven by comfort, and all you're doing is to pamper your life for this world, you're losing it. You are losing your life. Those things are all hard things. To follow Jesus is to die to yourself. I mean, that hardly qualifies as my best life now, does it? To kill sin every day, it's hard, it's bloody, it's messy. It's a war. And if you, if you think the Christian life is easy... I don't think you understand Christian life. You need to see things like this. You might be being deceived. Because we have sin, we have the world, we have, we have the devil. All of these things waging war every day against our affections for Christ. Against our allegiance and obedience to the King. Every single day. And to kill it is to Die to self. I mean, I know that if Judgment Day got canceled, you have things in mind I would like to do. Right? But to get up in the morning and say, you know what? I'm not going to do them. That's hard. That's not easy. The Christian life is hard. It's messy. It's bloody. And we are called to a life of service a life of humility in a world that prizes pride as a virtue. That prizes money as ultimate success. Power. And Jesus is saying, no, we serve. You pick up your cross daily and you follow me. Follow you where? To the cross. Those are all hard things. Now, why is it appealing then? Why in the world are you a Christian? Because you don't want to go to hell? So you're going to live a miserable life here so that eternity is not more miserable? That is blatantly unbiblical. Blatantly. We see the promises of God and God offering things as a reward for faithfulness all of the time. Do you warn them? No. No. We don't earn them, but God is saying... God is saying, follow me. There's great rewards. When God is saying, hate your life, He's not saying, hate your life ultimately, is, is He? What does the verse say? If anyone hates his life in this world, you're not hating your life ultimately. 
Hating your life in this world is the biggest blessing you can have. It's the, the greatest favor you can do to your own self. Do not live for comfort. Live for the glory of God. That sometimes means discomfort. That sometimes means pain. Don't compromise your values, your truth, what God has revealed. Sometimes that means choosing affliction over sin. But look at the promise. Look at the promise. You hate your life. In this world, what happens to you? You keep your eternal life. It's one for the other. God is offering you eternal life, eternal joy, the life of God Himself in you forever, absent of any sadness, any discomfort. He's asking you to die. And then he says, Oh yeah, if we die, we bear much, much fruit. The death, I mean, think of this, and I'm going to apply it to, to, to ourselves because I think it encompasses what Jesus is accomplishing in bearing fruit. If Jesus had not died, people from all tongues, tribe, and nations, they would not be able to go to heaven. They would not be able to be in heaven with Him, enjoying His loving, gracious presence forever. They would be justly in condemnation for eternity. Jesus died to bear fruit. What fruit? That we would be in heaven with Him. Jesus died, in part, died, and part of the fruit that Jesus is bearing to this day is His church flourishing, going places throughout the earth. If Jesus had not died, He would not, there would be no ease for a sovereign grace of South Bay being planted ten years ago. Now, if Jesus had not died, a small church in the South Bay would not be able ever to plant an international church. I mean, have you guys thought about that? I mean, it, it is trippy to me how we're modest, we're small, and God is so good to us that through many circumstances and events, He's causing our little church to go to South America, to go to Brazil and have another small, modest church there, sent by us here. Only the mercy of God. This is Jesus bearing fruit and going to the four corners of the earth and having His gospel being preached so that even Brazilians will be in the kingdom. Even them Brazilians. That's the grace of God. And that's, I mean, I'm, I'm saying church planting or local church, there's fruit of salvation being born in your life if you're in Jesus. 
even when it doesn't feel like it. So he's saying, yeah, die, but there's so much fruit that is going to be born. Now, if Jesus died, you know, you follow Jesus to the cross. Yeah, it's hard to follow Jesus and die to yourself daily. But what's the reward? And the text is that we will be with him. Now, that makes the bloody mess of daily sanctification more bearable. And it gives you strength, doesn't it? You know what? It hurts right now, but I have the promise. We get to live a promise-driven life. And that's the only way to do it. That is the only way to do it, is to have your eyes on the promise, on the prize. God calls us to many hard things. But hard does not mean joyless. It doesn't. It does not mean joyless. Just by looking at the promises of God. Oh, if I die, I bear fruit. That's joyful. If I follow you to the cross, I'll be with Him forever. Yeah, I'm down. Okay, if I lose my life in this world, if I hate my life in this world, I'm not, you know, I don't make my life my idol and I don't live just to keep my life. Do I get to keep eternal life? Yeah, I want this. I want this. That's joyful. That is a joyful life. Don't let hardship snatch your joy from your heart. The joy of salvation. Do not allow that to happen. Fight for joy with all you can. With all, we are called to resist the devil. Make it bloody. Get intense. Make it a war. He pokes your eye, you poke both of his. He punches you in the gut, you punch him in the face. I can keep going, I won't. <laughs> but whatever it is, you make it more intense. You make it more intense. You have the sword. You have all the weapons necessary to not allow to not allow the devil to snatch your joy. Even in the hard circumstances of life, we are called to a life of hardship, but not to a life of joylessness. The Spirit of God ensures that we get to meet our God daily. Seek Him, fight for Him. Do not abandon the king because he doesn't do what you tell him to do. He deserves much more than this. And he's been only good to you. He has been only good to you. And the last promise is that if we serve him, if you live a life of service, the Father will honor you. I mean, how cool it is that on the last day you're going to get there and he's going to say, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. As opposed to leave, I never knew you.
How joyful it is for us to daily think about this. Yeah, I am living a life of service, a life that is ridiculed by cultural standards, but in the end I get to be honored by the Father. Good and faithful servant, come in. Now eternity has started. Let's go. That has to keep us going. That has to, to affect our emotions. For this God that sends His Son, who is the King of the universe, to lowly die a servant's death and be crucified, and killed and buried. But on the third day, He rose Him from the dead. You know, His raising Jesus from the dead, it was a public, global, universal statement. It's accomplished. I have accepted your sacrifice on behalf of our people. Jesus was raised for our justification, our legal standing before God, innocent. But more than that, not only innocent, but positively righteous. He's done everything that my son has done. It's the righteousness of Jesus is given to us. That's what God did. And because of that, we love Him, we trust in Him, we rejoice in Him. Daily, we trust the King. Can we trust the King? Can we live in light of God's majesty? Can you talk to your soul this week? Say, why are you behaving this way? Why are you so downcast? Hope in God. I mean, the king has power over life and death. He's a good king. Whatever he commands happens. He presides over the affairs of mankind. And there's nothing that happens in this world that is just out of his decrees. Many things happen that anger him. And you can cast yourself upon him when you're wronged. You don't have to take vengeance. You just cast yourself upon Him and you trust in Him. Because the King of the universe is good and He cares for you. So come to Him. Come to Him and live in light of His majesty. Do not treat Him tritely. Do not forget how high and exalted He is. Live in light of His majesty. Love Him. Because the king loves and cares for us to the point that he sent his son to die. Amen? Amen. Let us pray and then uh, we'll worship the king in song. Father, I thank you that you have sent your son. Oh, your majesty baffles us. Whenever we get in touch with it, it amazes us. Let this amazement not pass, Lord. Let us live and love the truth that You are majestic. Oh, how majestic is Your name, O oh Lord. Let us obey You 
joyfully because you deserve it. And you have proven time after time that you love us. And that you are a benevolent, benevolent king, a loving king, a fatherly king. How awesome it is that you, the king, through Jesus, adopts us into your own family and we get to enjoy you as daddy. By losing our life, we keep eternal life. By living a life of service, we get to be honored by you. And that hating our life, we get to keep our life eternally. And that dying for ourselves, dying to ourselves, we bear much fruit, just like our Master Jesus. I thank you for all of these things, and I I ask that you would sustain them all in our hearts and minds as we leave this place today and live in a world that does not know you. Let us announce you, proclaim you until you come.